Hey, hey, Independent Life Nation, here we are to talk with Lindsay Telg. This is the second part of the interview. And in this second part of the interview, she really goes deep on trauma-informed care, she, the powerful, powerful uh, utility of really you know, describing our story that we tell ourselves about who we are, who the world is, uh, others in it, and et cetera, and how we can take back the pen, how we can rewrite that story and do it in a way that's very cathartic and therapeutic for ourselves. And she then talks about how anxiety and depression was something that she really struggled with, how she coped with it, and then ultimately, you know, has been something that has been a really good teacher and lesson for her in order to overcome the stigma that's associated with it, leaning into that vulnerability with courage, and really being able to tell her own story about what it means and do it in a way that allows her to still be able to be somebody that is very productive and high achieving. She's got an amazing uh, occupational therapy practice, LSC, uh, Occupational Therapy. They're amazing and they have all kinds of professionals that can be very helpful to people. We will link them up into our show notes. So I hope you enjoy the second half of our conversation with Lindsay Tell. Another one is is based on some of the intersections that we've had in working together. And, and I want to start out with the first one, wherein um, Hurricane Michael. Oh, yeah. So Hurricane Michael, for those that don't know, was a hurricane that hit the panhandle um, and just devastated. Uh, terrible. Panama, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I think they literally had to replace every single telephone pole in the area. Like, every single pole was replaced. Like, it was just leveled uh yeah. it was it was devastating and people were having to stay in those shelters mm-hmm. so so there was like i think i think it got to be where there was nine sustained shelters that were open from october through december and that's a majorly long time yeah. to have shelters activated and opened and housing people and i remember as centers we were trying to send people up to go visit the shelters to check in on people or their you know needs what are their needs are they being met what's going on and, and working with other emergency management professionals i remember calling you yeah and saying can you help and uh, you, you did and, and it was amazing i think you grabbed a person or two and went up there and you visited some of the shelters. You visited a, a tent city mm-hmm. that got set up because not everybody was staying in shelters that were there. There were, I mean, there was just not enough places to house people. And so there was like these tent cities that were popping up all over the place. Talk to us about your experiences when you went up there, what you saw and what you learned. That was an incredible experience. I'm, I'm a lifelong Floridian, so I've been through some hurricanes. Yeah. Um, this no, one leveled the place. Nothing like I've ever yeah. seen there. I mean, yeah. I was in Miami for Katrina and Floyd. And, um, and those were big ones. And they were big, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they crossed the pan. And there were lots of, you know, things down in the road, lots, you know, yeah. some roofs ripped off. The level of destruction, though, you know, those hurricanes I'd been through, you could go to a street or you would go to an area where maybe the buildings were a little older uh-huh. and it wasn't a surprise that they yeah. had taken a bigger hit. Panama City in that particular area that was hit, the beach was spared fairly well. So it was interesting. We stayed out on Panama City Beach, um, and that was such a weird juxtaposition to 
to drive 20 minutes into town and there was just everything was leveled Mm -hmm. and you could drive 20 minutes to the beach and because it was a little my my geography might be wrong but the Uh beach area is actually a little west or east so Uh it just hadn't caught the worst of the bands it still looked like a normal place wow we went to lunch at just a normal you know popped in and got a coffee at starbucks Uh you know everything looked fine you could drive 20 minutes west or east whichever way it was and nothing was functional um there were you know power lines down and cars flipped over Uh and standing water in places um and you know just just a remarkable challenge and so systemically it was interesting because i remember we paid a small fortune to stay at the hotel and it was definitely a price gouge oh yeah for sure and so thinking about some of the families that were trying to just kind of figure out a solution i don't know what you know you couldn't just you couldn't just say well just go stay in the the area that didn't get hurt Uh that wasn't a solution for a lot of folks we went to the shelter um and it was at a high school that was very large uh one of the biggest high schools and i went to a huge high school in Uh south florida okay this high school was gigantic Uh (laughs) and almost every inch of it taken up by some you know by fema by operations Mm -hmm. by housing and shelter and the staff there was doing an amazing job i I, i'm not an expert in disaster preparedness Mm -hmm. so i don't know you know but to me everyone was invested and trying their best Mm -hmm. And it was chaos, like yeah. you might suspect. Sure. Um, and emotions and tensions are high, and yeah. you have kind of an acute trauma response happening in all these folks. And some of the things that were really interesting was just sort of how this, how they tried to manage the challenges. So we we were in the cafeteria, and we learned that was where the kind of most of the housing was, or sheltering mm-hmm. of people was taking place. And there was an area in the back that was um, where the like kitchen line would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd go through and get your food. And the lights were dimmed, and we kind of noticed there were some people back there, and we eventually kind of said, what, what is that? Said, well, those are the people that have, like, PTSD or mental health issues. We don't really know, Created but they're just... Space. Yeah, um, but we don't really go back there. <laughs> <laughs> and I, on the one hand, I understand that. Yeah. And on the other hand, I thought, well, there's your most acute... Yeah. You know, you've put them all in one little section... But no one's going back there because there was just no one that could. Yeah. And then we ran into some mental health therapists that were volunteering their time. And they they were local to Panama uh-huh. City. And they'd been there about a month uh, volunteering in the shelter. And they never knew that this little PTSD pod of sorts wow. was there. Um, and so a lot of it was just the power of having someone there, again, to just analyze. Yeah. Just observe because I wasn't part of anything. I wasn't there as part of FEMA or Red Cross. I didn't have a job other than just kind of to notice what was going on. And there was, I felt like something really powerful in that. I don't know if it was inherently, you know, occupational therapy uh, that that did that, just as much as having an objective observer who was just like, huh. Yeah. uh, I don't know that these dots have gotten connected because everyone's busy working. And they're on the inside, yeah. you know, not necessarily this outside perspective coming in. Because you know, we got called in, and they call them multi-agency assessment strike teams. So they got mm-hmm. called MAST. <laughs> they love their acronyms. Yes. And um, you know that's kind of the doorway where we were able to call you and get you into the shelters and get permission for it. So you are observing people that have been there and there day in and day out. And we're talking months. Like, like for people to realize that when a shelter gets activated due to a storm, it's usually not open but a few days. You know maybe a week at the most 
these shelters were open for mm-hmm. three months and people were staying there for months on end. And sometimes they would move the shelters. So they were trying to open up the schools, which mm-hmm. took forever right. too. So the one thing is, is when you have a shelter that's a school, you know, the first thing they're trying to do is get people out of the shelter and open the school. Because like all the teachers had lost their homes and the kids had lost yeah. their homes and there was no way for the teachers to stay. I think they ended up putting them up in the hotels. Um, it, it took a long time to open up the, the, the schools mm-hmm. and, and then all this. And, and just the amount of... Yeah, like outsider coming in to do that. And that's why I thought from hearing from you and when you would debrief us about what you saw, I feel that the the model of, of you know, how we respond during the times where, you know, the, the disaster is pretty fresh yeah. needs the lens of an outsider, but particularly one that has the skill set of an occupational therapist mm-hmm. that knows these different types of assessments that can see some of these little details that if people are on the inside, won't it'll right. just be something that they lose sight of to be able to do that, to go into there. I th- really think there's a niche for OTs and disaster response. And, and there are OTs who work in disaster response. In fact, I ended up contributing a, a little vignette to someone who was writing a chapter for an OT no textbook kidding. on awesome. OT and disaster management. We have that to learn experience. more about this. Yeah, but I can see where. Yeah, I think more than helpful. anything, it was just you know it, it's a chaotic situation, and everybody that's there from FEMA to Red Cross to the local agencies are all working. Yeah. Understandably, they're, yeah. they've got their heads down. They've got a task. They got their roles, yeah. and they're working very hard. Um, but it can be hard to sort of keep I think a bird's eye overview but also zero in on just these little pods of challenges that maybe if we support this group of people a little differently or maybe we didn't realize that we could connect these two people that are volunteering and and support that particular person so it did feel like you almost just needed someone who was just a third observer Mm -hmm. in the room to just kind of notice the things that might be impeding the progress that everybody's trying to achieve in terms of getting the shelters emptied. Um, And I I mean, I could do a whole other podcast on little stories about things. And we were only there maybe three days. And I think I have probably 100 separate stories I could tell you of just really interesting things we encountered and challenges that people were facing, especially people who were living with disability before. Yep. They that before the hurricane. Well, and that's where the Independent Living Network really got involved with disaster mm-hmm. preparedness is recognizing that oftentimes people with disabilities who are living in the community um, get displaced, end up going into a shelter, and then don't return back into the community they came out of and, and end up in some form of institutionalized care. Mm-hmm. And getting them back into the community is such a, uh, a lot of challenges uh, in doing that. So it really strikes to the core of our mission yeah. why we need to be involved. Now, from what I remember, did you go out and visit some of the tent cities? We did, yeah. Talk to me about this experience. So so I'll set the stage from what I know about mm-hmm. it, and you can talk to about it. But um, So there were um, tent cities that were popping up all over the place. So the shelters couldn't accommodate all the people that, that, that had the needs. And shelters aren't a match for everybody that mm-hmm. may need a shelter. So, so you, in a shelter, you can't use alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs. Mm-hmm. Some people are addicted. They have substance use issues. They're not going to stay in a shelter. They can't use. Um, you have people that are driving in from out of town, mm-hmm. you know, that are there to do work. There's so much cleanup work. There's nowhere to stay. All the hotels right. are either booked or have been leveled. And, and so you have all these like different, what I understood were pockets mm-hmm. of people coming together, living in a, in a tent city that then kind of develops their own 
culture and community. Yep. I think the one you went to maybe had like a, a mayor that was yeah. designated. <laughs> I'm gonna stop talking because you were there. Yeah, I, no, I mean that's like? that's a great summary. Um, yeah. yeah, we were there again, maybe three, four days. I don't remember exactly, and we watched the tent city grow every day. We went out there; just was, <laughs> it was bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger. Um, and it did. It started. Uh, there was a there was a wonderful woman who real dynamite person who was just kind of setting it up and running the show and trying to keep order. And it was on the property of a church that had been damaged. Yeah. Um, and so the church had, you know, from my understanding, let them use that property. I think the church originally thought, you know, this would be, I don't know, 15 or so tents. Yeah. <laughs> Blossomed into like 100. The intention or, was or really good too, like out yeah. of goodwill. But I think they it learned along the way. Like got big. Well, and I think it yeah. just, for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, it was just um, more and more people kept finding out about it. And there was a huge population of people who were kind of itinerant workers who were coming to do roofing and, mm -hmm. and to, to construction and clean up. And that was always a bit of a, you know, I remember being a source of confusion was kind of the, the mayor, I guess, of Tent City. You know, there was an overemphasis maybe on the people that were coming from out of town and a feeling uh -huh. that most of the Tent City was these out-of-towners. And so we should just sort of shut this down because we're just creating this uh -huh. situation where we're inviting more people into the city than the city can support. Mm -hmm. And really being there on the ground and talking to people, we pretty quickly learned there were some people from out of town and a lot of people that were local. Yeah, A lot of them, probably, I, I think easily most of the, the population of that tent city. And, you know, like anything, it becomes a challenge with public health and sanitation. You know, where's the porta potties? Who's going to empty them? Where are these people going to shower? Accessible? Are they accessible? Well, <laughs> I think and they weren't the because it was a porta yeah. potty. <laughs> I know. And I felt bad for them because, like, uh, you know, the, here they are. You know, yeah. there's nowhere for these people to go. No one's setting up property for people to, you know, set up their tents, and that was a need. And this church, out of their goodwill, does it. And then when, as soon as they do it, they're coming to understand, like, oh, as soon as we do this, we're responsible for meeting some of these like, rules and regulations of accessibility and all these other kind yeah. of things. And <laughs> it, it was just, it was interesting. And then you, you know, you had people driving by to drop off donations, which on the one hand was great, but also it, it was interesting seeing it happen, you know, and thinking about when I clean my house out and donate it, am I donating something people really need? Yeah. You know, and, and so yeah. getting piles and piles of people's clothes yeah. was like, well, now I, you know, the, not I, but the people in Tent City were kind of like, well, can I, what, I have to handle someone else's trash, Now you just created more work. Right. Yeah. I, you know, they didn't need clothes necessarily, yeah. or at least at a certain point didn't need any more clothes. Yeah. Um, and certainly not clothes for women and babies because that wasn't really who was staying there. Mm -hmm. But jackets and work clothes for men would have been helpful. Um and so it was just interesting watching these, this kind of cascade of challenges arise that no one anticipated or could mm -hmm. have predicted and trying to juggle it um, and then realizing, you know, the folks that are staying there are all there for very unique and different reasons. Yeah. Many of them were the folks with PTSD or yeah. other conditions where living in a shelter, the shelter is noisy. It's one big, it's think about your Hilton. cafeteria in, yeah. in high school. It's That's the, the real. Yeah. And it's you loud. got a six it's, by yeah. three sleeping space. It's echoey. You have all your life's so possessions yeah. in your bag. Yeah. And there's no place to lock it up. No. You're just having to hope, you know, you're yeah. required in the shelter to go try to avail yourself of services. Yeah. Um, they called it the the hallway of hell. Yeah. Some of the folks did. Um, and, it, you know, it was really stressful. How do you leave yeah. everything you own yeah. just under a under a cot yeah. and hope that it's safe? Yeah, um, right. 
And then you have people getting upset and being taken out by the police and there's young children there. And so a lot of the parents felt like it was just more traumatizing to be in this kind of chaotic environment. They wanted to get their kids out. It was safer and calmer at the tent city. It was actually really, the weather was beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was right around, you know, October, November. And so their reasons for it were really complex. Um, And and I think like you're pointing to something important too. From from what I heard, they did have like some resources Mm -hmm. already there and they didn't need more coming in. I even heard like, you know, they had water and they had food Mm -hmm. and yet Mm -hmm. a lot of people are still coming with water and food, clothes. What was really needed, it sounds like, is, you know, psychosocial mental health assistance. Yeah. You know, that necessarily isn't there. Right. You know, being provided and where someone like you can assess and determine what some of the needs are and then maybe can start figuring out in this context, how can we help people? Yeah. And I think we would have had to be there a lot longer yeah. to achieve oh, yeah. that because there was, yeah. especially in that group, it felt like a lot of mistrust yeah. and distrust and f- and very fair because, I mean, who, You're the, in a situation. who the heck so were we? We just showed up out yeah. of nowhere. You know, why listen to us? So vulnerable. But as we were getting ready to leave, there was a more, it seemed, purposeful effort. Like the FEMA reps were coming to the tent city to see mm-hmm. if anybody was, you know, qualified for FEMA assistance. And there was like a healthcare clinic coming out okay. that had, you know, cool. actual medications and resources, people that were needing insulin and uh-huh. just kind of basic things to survive. And so it, there was starting to be a community kind of built around it because it, it became kind of organically needed at that yeah. point. But again, it really just showed that I mean, what do you do when a whole city is decimated? The whole infrastructure is gone. What do you do? People have to just create an infrastructure out of nothing. And that was really what was happening there. Um, Surreal. It was. It was. That's the best word for it. So the other space where we've intersected in terms of uh, the Independent Living Network and Centers for Independent Living and OT, Centers for Independent Living have been working with the Department of Corrections Mm -hmm. to help facilitate our uh, educational curriculum that is given to inmates while they're in prison and the impetus being that a lot of this curriculum hasn't been accessible probably relative for people with disabilities very meaningful useful and what what doc the department of corrections was looking for was a, a curriculum that was accessible relevant and that would have some outcomes, like preparing inmates for when they do leave prison to integrate successfully back into the community, prevent recidivism. And the Florida Association of Centers for Independent Living contracted with you right. to help create this curriculum. Yeah. Talk to us about it. So I was really excited when I think it was you that reached out to me first. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to chat a little bit more um, about what I could bring to the table as an occupational therapist. And so my background and my career, actually right out of college, was in curriculum development and design for public health. Mm-hmm. And so I have that experience and sort of put it on a shelf for a few years doing doing more traditional clinical OT um, and have since sort of gotten back into a little bit of that. And I think, you know, again, that that kind of overanalyzing, right, the being really good at analyzing the details. Master uh, analyzer. Master yes. analyzer. I should just put that on my, on my business card. Um, <laughs> that in uh, occupational justice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It comes in really handy when you're designing a curriculum, though, because yeah. you, you are thinking about all of the things that could go wrong, all of the things somebody might need to be able to access this curriculum. And some of that's really tangible stuff, like, of, you know, of course, the contrast. You know, we're not going to use a lot of color on color. We're going to mm-hmm. have black on white text and font. How do we design the layout of a page so it's easy to follow for mm-hmm. someone who has 
um, you know, visual or, or attention deficits um, or cognitive deficits, making the font a, a certain size mm-hmm. that's a little bit more accessible. So there's a sort of tangible things that we think of as being accessible. But beyond the sort of just print on a page is what does the curriculum do? How do we progress somebody from stage one, you know, day one mm-hmm. to hopefully leaving this program understanding something more about themselves. Yeah, because it was a 100-hour curriculum. It was a 100-hour curriculum. So it it, yeah. it it clocked in, uh, I think, at the end at 550 pages. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the way we we thought to structure it, or I, I worked on it, was a scaffolded technique. And mm-hmm. so all of the activities are um, broken up into this idea of learn, try, apply. So we learn the material first, we engage with it through an instructor who's teaching the material, sharing about the material. We try engaging with the material in class. And for each of those activities, there were usually two levels of the activity. So one version that somebody might engage with that might have more prompts or might have, you know, you circle your answers instead of kind of generating them. And then a higher level activity that, you know, if it works better for you to just think off the top of your head, you want to write your own answers down. And then apply where they integrate that material and they integrate it over the course of a few weeks um, so that every apply activity that they work on on their own builds on something else they've learned. And another important piece was that it was trauma-informed. I think hands down the incidence of trauma-based conditions or just the experience of trauma, if you think about something like the ACEs study. Adverse childhood experiences. Exactly, yeah. So there's an extremely high correlation between ACEs scores and incarcération. And so you have to almost assume that anybody who's going to come into this course probably has a pretty high ACE score. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would, I would say, be the exception that somebody does not. And so really thinking about how, how do we approach a curriculum that is sensitive to that and is aware of that. And so we talked a little bit earlier, you're also acquainted with my husband, Brandon, yeah. uh, who works on Self-Narrate, which is a local nonprofit that helps people to, to uh, develop and share their personal stories. Mm-hmm. And so we actually took his curriculum and modified it a little bit and put that as the very first module of this program. And I am very curious to see how that works out in the pilot because I'm not sure that most people have had the opportunity to think about their own personal story Mm -hmm. and to write it down and share it. And I say that from the perspective of the general population. I know from his work and my involvement with it that most people who are not incarcerated have not done that. Right. Have not yeah. sat down and purposely thought, how did I get here? Yeah. Uh, kind of linking it back to what we started yeah, talking about. Yeah, role habits and yeah. Yeah, routine. Yeah. And so I think, you know, starting with that why. Start with the why. How did I get here? Yeah. Why did I get here? Why do I want things to turn out different? Um is a really critical and important piece. And so we're, we're going to ask, you know, that, that the learners engage in that experience and that opportunity to really sit down and think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what I love about your curriculum, and I've been able to review it, because uh, I saw the other curriculum that, that was being taught in the you know, prisons. Mm-hmm. And the image that came to me when I was reading through that, that, that curriculum was just like, 
the industrial part of town. Like it's just like this kind of dead, this doesn't feel good, a lot of stress, like nothing that seems mm. like uh, really beneficial. When I saw yours, I saw just a vibrant garden. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and, and in, in a way Thank because you. like what you're really getting at, I, I like the, the learn, try, apply. Mm -hmm. So so it's not just knowledge, but it's actually got to put it into practice and then hopefully get a skill out of it. But I think what you're saying here, um, and it's trauma-informed, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, understanding that a lot of people that are receiving this have gone through some really adverse experiences within their life that can, you know, if we reverse engineer, it could explain to why they made those choices and decisions sure. and, you know, identity and routine and habits and, and, and everything else that probably led them there. But th this notion that if we can be able to understand and articulate our own personal story, so powerful yeah. and therapeutic. And perhaps even once we're able to do that, you know, can we rewrite it? Going back to what you were saying before is like, why are we doing some of the routines and habits and, mm -hmm. and roles that we're doing is perhaps we've, we've already been given a story that we buy into and becomes our own personal story that we've adopted for ourselves. But really, if we, if we look at it and call it out and declare it, then we can maybe rewrite it. Yep. And in rewriting the story, we change our identity, we change our habits, and we change mm -hmm. our routines. Talk to me about the, the power or therapeutic approach of doing this, which you put into a curriculum here that's going to, it's novel. It's, it's, I don't, to my knowledge, hasn't been done before yeah, in, in this environment. So a piece of the curriculum is that at the end, they are supposed to produce a series of documents. They have to have a resume, a cover letter, uh, an explanation of their criminal history that they could share with a future employer. Mm -hmm. Um, part of the accessibility piece is that they're able to articulate what accommodations they may need in their job and that mm -hmm. they understand ADA and what they do and do not have to disclose and what is a reasonable accommodation. And all of that seems, I mean, that is all important and on the surface is kind of dry. Like a resume is just a resume, right? right? Like an explanation of the criminal history could just be I have a felony for X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. But underneath all that is a story. Right, And so if we reduce it down to here's a list of things I've done on my resume or maybe haven't done, um, that's a lot harder, I think, to present if you've been incarcerated for a couple of years, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe a decade even, uh, maybe more, where you haven't built a resume. How do I turn that into an employer in a way that helps me to get a job? Yeah. Well, if I can tell the story on my cover letter. Yeah. Right. If I understand myself well enough to say the reason that my resume doesn't have a lot of information is, you know, yeah. fill in the blank is a is a well-crafted, well-understood story. And I think it's important just to say for listeners like story. Often when my husband does storytelling, people think that means that we're going to get together and tell like a fictional story. Uh-huh. It's not what it means. It's making sense out of your own life and right. being able to articulate it and share it with somebody else. how we understand else. the world through story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so the curriculum is really built around that idea that every single activity they do, whether it's budgeting, conflict management, um, you know, career interests, 
is all built around helping them to create a story and an identity that they can be proud of. Mm. Not one that was thrust upon them based on their disability or their incarceration history or their criminal record or their you know upbringing, but as one that they kind of can craft moving forward. Um, my hope and goal is that sort of at the end, they have an identity that they are proud of. Not that they're proud of all the choices or actions or things that may have happened in their sure. life in the same way that any of us has moments that we would prefer not to consider and sure, talk sure, about, sure. but that we can be proud of who we are as a whole. Yeah. That I can you know, hold my head up high and say that this is how I got here. This is how I'm going to take a different path uh-huh. because I understand Again, those choices, you know, we have we have choices as we go along that lead us somewhere. Yeah. If we can understand how we got there, then we can reverse engineer. Like and have more said. empathy for change, ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we can change those choices. But if we don't understand the roles we were living in that led us to make certain choices and the habits and routines that led us down certain paths that in this case may have led to interaction with the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. you're not really going to understand how to not do that again. Right. And to me, that's like separating like who I think I am versus what I've done. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find this very helpful when perhaps I observe somebody doing something, a behavior that I would, I guess, judge as not being good, you know, complaining, yeah. blaming, gossiping, you know, hurting somebody. Um, but also separating that and not saying that, well, they're a bad person. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. It's just that we're capable of doing things that aren't so good and yeah. separating the two uh, from one another. But I, I think I, I just got to imagine like for anyone to examine our own lives and examine the stories we told ourselves about ourselves mm-hmm. or about the world or about others, it's hard work. It, it is. It's hard work. Yeah. And then to share it. That's the piece of the pilot I'm most curious to see how that'll pan out. Because uh, these are, these are, I imagine the, the stereotype of people that are incarcerated are pretty tough yeah. you know, kind of people. But this sounds like it would... I don't know, uh, be a situation where they they, they may seem vulnerable Mm -hmm. or feel vulnerable doing it. So there's not a lot of research on incarcerated people with disabilities. And a lot of the research I could find was actually coming out of the UK. There's a very small amount in the US that really looks specifically at recidivism Mm -hmm. and or the experience of somebody with a disability in the prison system. And one of the things that did come up at least a couple of times, and again, the data is not super strong because there's, when I say not a lot of studies, I think I read six. <laughs> wow. There's like really not a lot of studies on the subject. So there's a gap in the literature. Yeah, for Researchers sure. love that. <laughs> but um, it's that very thing you're speaking to, that the role that somebody has to assume in a prison environment yeah. has a very certain set of behaviors associated with it. You don't show vulnerability. You don't yeah. show weakness. You're tough. Yeah. You don't let people know maybe that you've even had a disability because you right. don't want to be taken sure. advantage of. Yeah. Um, there's there's certain things, right, that belong in the role of an inmate. And then those things don't serve somebody well outside. Yeah. There's very little that's done to purpose mantle that role of inmate and help somebody develop the role of citizen. And a lot of what's been done, and I think that is just, that's always the conversation about recidivism is how do we do that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what's done is sort of just tangible skills. Well, if we get you a job, if we get you some education, you won't come back here. And there's data that that's true. But by and large, the thing that people were reporting in the data was just not knowing how to respond differently. 
if someone said something to me in prison, I had to respond kind of aggressively because mm-hmm. that's the only way I can let people yeah. know not to mess with me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work at the grocery store. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work, you know, when someone takes yeah. my spot in the line at the gas station or uh-huh. whatever. It doesn't serve me to yell at that stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's that's part of the challenge. And so I'm really curious with this pilot because I am. we are asking yeah, them to yeah, do, yeah. and that's the point of a pilot, right, is yeah. you just sort of we'll, see. We'll have you back with the person that's doing the pilot. We're, we're, oh, that'd be great. For listeners that don't know, we're, this uh, curriculum is being taught in three different prisons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we're going to learn a lot from it. Yeah, so it'll be really interesting to see, I, yeah. I think, how that goes. And I'm really excited that, that Dr. Atem is the one leading it. Yeah. Gainesville is such a small world, but Dr. Atem was part of the storytelling community with my husband. Oh, and you shared, know him? I do, yeah. He I was sh- going to refer you to the podcast we did with him. We did yeah, a podcast with he him. He shared yeah. his story uh, oh, as part of one of my husband's events many years ago. And a phenomenal so, story. Absolutely. And I'm really excited about that, too. I uh, did not know you knew each other. I did, I yeah. Love Gainesville. Yeah, so if you've listened to the podcast and heard his story, when I learned he was teaching it, I thought he is the perfect person, right? Because I do feel like if I went in and tried to teach it, I I haven't had a particularly hard life. Like the trauma-informed. Yeah, I've had my challenges. But, right, to stand in front of somebody else and ask them to be vulnerable in a way that I can't match. Yeah. Right? I don't have those those same kind of challenges in a lot of ways. You can't beat Dr. Atem's story. <laughs> no, I mean, like, he, right. you know, yeah, exactly. You know, he was talking about some of the, the, the parallels of, mm-hmm. of some of that's incarcerated and his journey through genocide in Sudan. Absolutely. And, and how, um, you know, coming to this country and not having the skills either. So a lot of people might be coming out of prison without the skills. Right. And, you know, I could see where he can speak to a Absolutely. place of, yeah, I didn't know the language when I moved here when I was 15. I still graduated high school. Right. And I still learned. I still was able to do that and acquire the skills. And, and he does talk about yeah. how people would talk to him in a way that if uh, it was back in, in Africa and, and during those times, uh, he would respond to it a different way, too. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to have both I'm of excited. you on here. <laughs> I mean, a really important part of that storytelling yeah. piece with any community is that vulnerability can meet vulnerability. Yeah. I can't show up and ask you to share more about yourself than I'm willing to right. share about me. Yeah. Um, and we all have stories. It's not a competition. You know, it's not your story is worse than my story. We've all got our yeah, own lived experience. Yeah, we don't need to experience. do the Russian Olympics. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I think it is going to be potentially very powerful to have somebody yeah. who really can relate a story of immense struggle and overcoming. Yeah. Um, and, and I hope that that provides a sense of hope and inspiration I to the people who are participating that, you know, look, in, in a lot of ways, if someone can overcome that, right? this challenge that you're facing, leaving prison with a disability, yeah. trying to get a job, is not insurmountable. Yeah. Hard. Sure. Not insurmountable. That's right. Well, you know, I'm going to start rounding out our conversation here with where it kind of started and mm-hmm. vulnerability. So you talked about at the beginning um, anxiety and depression and, and coming to terms with it and everything else like there. Um, what was the role of, of, of confronting or working through vulnerability um, and, and getting to a more positive place with uh, being able to, I don't know if coping is the right word, but um, with your anxiety and, mm-hmm. and your depression and, you know, living, you know, the life that you have right yeah. now? Um, you know, it's funny. The very first thing I felt like I needed to say was to quantify how bad the depression and anxiety was. Mm-hmm. And that's a piece of that stigma, right? That's still in mental health. That doesn't feel like it's enough of a disability to call it that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's still my my internal instinct is to go, well, wait, I got to probably tell you how bad it was. Uh-huh. Um, 
And in some ways, I think that is important, right? Sure. It's important to understand the context. You know, when I say it was bad, I've been I've been in a hospital setting multiple times. I've, you know, I lost a marriage to the extent of my uh-huh. depression and anxiety because it was just so unmanageable. Mm-hmm. But really being able to, to say that out loud is huge. Because for a lot of years, it the worst fear I had was that you would figure that out, that you would know that, that you could somehow see it on my skin, mm-hmm. you know, that you could just meet me and know that I was somehow not as put together as I was projecting to the world. Yeah. And the ability to really be okay with not being okay <sighs> was... Powerful. Then it gives space to heal. Yeah. Um, deeply powerful. And it... You know, in my case, it came through a lot of years of therapy and really just having to sit in a room with myself, which was not always fun or comfortable. Oh, um, yeah. And having to sit in a room across from somebody who could reflect back some of the beliefs about myself that, ooh, you know, it's hard. It's hard. I'll, I'll never forget. I had a counselor one time tell me, you know, does it, did it ever, um, does it ever feel to you that maybe you kind of create your own anxiety? And when I tell you I wanted to throw something at that woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it it had become a pattern. It had become a routine and a habit. I didn't know how to live without feeling anxious. If things got calm, I'd take on another project. I'd sign up for another volunteer commitment. Uh I literally did create some of my own anxiety because I had learned that was how to live. Wow. I didn't know how to live calm. Um, And so, you know, that that power of sitting down and just checking in with yourself – I still go to counseling to this day because I find the practice of sitting down for an hour every week or every other week to purposefully just check in with myself uh-huh. is profound. Yeah. Not because I'm unhealthy or unwell right now. Everybody needs to do that. Everybody needs that. Everybody needs to do that. Because we don't. We live in such a busy world right. that it's so rare that we get that opportunity to stop and say, is this the life I want to be living? Is there anything I want to change? Am I good right now? Yeah. You know, is there a way about this that I don't want to be thinking? I want to maybe just have a different attitude or approach or I want to hear someone else's perspective. Yeah. Um, so that, that vulnerability piece really, you can't avoid checking in with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it is important that you uh, quantified, you know, kind of the level of anxiety and depression. I, I think it... Uh, for people that don't have anxiety and depression, like chronic anxiety and depression like you do, can easily be flippant and say, this, the traffic this morning made me anxious. Mm-hmm. You know, what is this anxiety kind of thing? You know, I was depressed after, you know, I lost my dog. Come on, you know. So I think it is important because yeah. I think oftentimes people can be very flippant about real clinical chronic depression and anxiety. So, and, and the courage to share that. Like you said, you didn't want people uh, to know about it. You feel like oh, it was written yeah. on you. That's, I would imagine that's stigma, right? Like coming from... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. For many, many years. Um, I think the first time I really talked about it out loud with people who weren't in like group with me <laughs> or yeah, something yeah. was in my psychosocial class in, in occupational therapy school, in my, in my graduate school. And we were talking about conditions related to depression and anxiety and... Um, I just shared with my class, like, I relate to this. I understand. Uh And I I want you to understand that I know in this environment, I was a good student. I, you know, was in charge of certain things and on committees and clubs. And I really felt like it was important that people understood that those two things were not mutually exclusive. That this person you know as being kind of high achieving and pretty high functioning Mm -hmm. and successful 
also has these other things going on. And they're not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. You don't have to pick. I don't have to pick mentally ill, you know, or, or struggling with mental health or successful. And both. I can have both roles. Yeah. I mean, it's a both and situation. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, fortunately, over time, that has faded quite a bit, and I don't have significant issues with depression and anxiety today, but it has dramatically informed the, the 15 to 20 years that I did. Yeah. <laughs> most of my life, I'm 37, so most of my adult life was spent in pretty deep depression and anxiety and achieving a lot of things along the, the way. same time. And wow. So it's, a, it's both and, and I think that's important. I think it's especially hard, or at least it was for me, to be higher achieving and to feel like I could say how much I struggled. It felt like the world told me I had to pick. Like, if I was going to be high achieving, people wouldn't believe I struggled so much. Mm. They would they would think I was making it up, you know, or, or it wouldn't feel real. Gotcha. Huh. Um, interesting. And I've heard that from other people, from clients right? I see now, yeah. you know, that, that have that interesting sense. And again, it's that role. Like, if I'm this, I'm supposed to act uh-huh. this way. So where's the space for me that? to yeah. define, you know, yeah. I can have both things. Gotcha. Um, but well, those conversations only come about by talking, by realizing then, more people absolutely, feel that way. You know, articulating it. And, and that takes a lot of courage, right? So you have this uh, vulnerability that's due to stigma about the reality of, of what's going on in your inner space, in your inner world. And to be able to, I'd imagine in that class, um, it, it took courage, you know, to, to, to articulate that, to share that. And, and so I think one of the, you brought up Brene Brown earlier, and like she's like the queen of talking about <laughs> vulnerability and courage, right? <laughs> and it's kind of like one of those you know values and virtues that can only exist in the face of vulnerability. Yeah. So you can't be brave or courageous unless vulnerability is present. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I want to acknowledge you for having that courage because then I would I would like to think it creates space for other people who haven't not yet leaned into their vulnerability with courage. And, and are needing to do that uh, to help them recover or start down the pathway of getting better or healing. And maybe that, I don't know, has been helpful for why you might be uh, in a better place now than you were before. It's like, you know, kind of not stuffing down like that jack-in-the-box that's going to come out. Yeah. And now you've let it come out and you've owned it and uh, been able to do that. So I want to acknowledge you for having that courage. Yeah. My husband and his storytelling work always talks about take back the pen take back the take pen. back the pen right so who's writing your story <laughs> and that was a really you know it's a really powerful thing that that i i keep in the back of my brain you know if i don't like the story that's being told about me i can take back the pen um, and there is a lot of power in being able to tell that story yourself and wow. so for the folks in hurricane michael and the folks you know who are going to go through this curriculum um you know, for the folks that I see as, as clients in my occupational therapy practice, that's always my hope is that they leave empowered to take back the pen. Of course, we hope they learn some tangible skills along the way yeah. and some things that help them. But more than anything, I do think what will carry them through is feeling like they have ownership over their own narrative. Yes. Um, and I'm, you know, that they are living a life that is something they are proud of, that is meaningful, that is comprised of activities and occupations that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they, they're they glad they were able to engage in and got meaning from. 
uh, and not a, not things that are filled with somebody else told me this yeah. is what I should be doing yeah. or how I should be. Well, I think you've answered my <laughs> question I ask all, all our guests. But what is the independent life to you, living independently? Mm-hmm. I think you just kind of answered it. I'll be <laughs> honest. Like, it sounds like it, but I'll still uh, turn yeah. it over to you. Uh, for me, uh, it's actually more about interdependence. Oh, I love that. Um, so I spent a long time being fiercely independent. Yeah. Uh, and it only got me as far as I could carry myself. Mm-hmm. And learning to rely on other people, uh, learning to be vulnerable, learning to live in community with others, uh, learning to ask for help has really ultimately not being so independent is what made me more independent. Right. <laughs> made me a more functional, yeah. happy, whole, healthy yeah. person. And yeah. so... Um, I think they go hand in hand. I don't, I think it can be an and both uh, thing as well. I think it was Steve Covey that his book habits, seven habits of highly successful people, you know, kind of breaks it down to like the levels, like dependence is like the lowest level. Independence is the middle level. Interdependence is Mm. the highest level to, to, to have in terms of functioning. And I think it's intuitive that a lot of people think independence means we're not at all Uh, relying upon other people like this rugged individualism uh, which you know no one is completely independent Mm -hmm. and uh, the beauty of I think human nature is that we are drawn to work with one another to connect with one another to be united because we all advance we all grow higher uh, through that interconnection absolutely well, Lindsay, it's a pleasure to have you here and oh, get through this conversation. We're going to have another one. I was going to say, I, we could keep Jacob. talking, but no doubt, no, we do have other things to do today. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> I would we, love we, to sit and will, talk a we little more. We will connect again. And, um, you know, I think getting you and uh, Dr. Atem together, yeah, uh, especially to. after these pilots, yeah, uh, to hear how the developer of the curriculum went, how the implementer of the curriculum did, and all the wonderful things that we could learn there. Uh, will be will be an awesome episode to have yeah that'd be great i'd look forward to coming back well i, I want to acknowledge you for for all that you do you really understanding your own story you taking back the pen you being courageous enough to lean, lean into your vulnerabilities to be able to share it I, I do think it's great that you're so high achieving because now you have the ability to reach other people in so many different kinds of ways and to be able to do that so grateful that we've connected and that we've been able to interdependently work with one another to help advance um, the independent life of other people and disasters or incarceration or just all these other kind of things very grateful me too me too all right Lindsay. well until the next time awesome onward and upward thanks Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.